Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today I'm in studio with co-host Tara Barrett. Tara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dale. So today we have something a little bit different planned for you uh, listening audience here. Um, we're going to bring you an update on a couple uh, different projects that we've been working on at the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office at Heritage NL. Uh, so we're, we're kind of looking at two stories today, uh, and they're kind of related. Yeah, they're related, I guess, through that merchant history. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about kind of that post-war merchant history in in St. John's and beyond uh, St. John's. And, and to start off with, uh, a bit of an update on a project that kind of landed in our lap digitally last uh, last October. Tara and I were at work and, and was getting kind of towards the end of the day. Yeah, I think it was about 4, 4.30. <laughs> it was like 4.30 or something in the afternoon. You know, most people are thinking, oh, it's time to go home. And someone had posted a photo on Twitter of the uh, the subway location on Water Street. And um, Adelaide. Water and Adelaide. Uh, the, the sign, uh, the old sign had come down. They were doing some renovations on the subway building. And underneath it was this uh, sign that said Lewis Furman and Company. And someone had just taken a picture of it, of the workers kind of dismantling the sign and said, does anyone know anything about this sign? Uh, and I had kind of remembered the story of, of Lewis Furman. Lewis Furman was a... Uh, a Polish Jew who during the Second World War had um, fought in the resistance against the Nazis. He and his wife Grunia uh, Furman had met in a, in a camp um, and uh, the, yeah, they were, they were involved in the resistance. They worked doing, she was a nurse and he worked as a saboteur, you know, uh, uh, whatnot. So, so you and I ran down the street <laughs> to, uh, to get this sign that uh, was coming off the building. Yeah, I was sitting at my desk and you said, have you seen Twitter? And I said, no. And so I opened up Twitter and, and saw this this sign that you had talked about, and then we literally locked off the office and ran down the street. Ran down the street, <laughs> yes. I'm not known for my running, but on that day, <laughs> on that day we did, and we got there, and it was in like seven pieces yeah. or something already. Some the the workers had had cut it uh, in into bits, and so we said, uh, "What's happening with the sign? Can we can we take this sign?" And the young fella who was doing the work said, "Yes, by you know." And he. <laughs> <laughs> they were literally carting stuff. Yeah, the they had wheelbarrows that they were putting things in, and that was going to be one of the things that was wheeled away. Yeah, we were absolutely there at the right time. So we we loaded this thing up and brought it back to our office in in all its different pieces, um, and then it kind of. <laughs> I'm sorry, but we didn't just load the thing up. We <laughs> took all the pieces. I stood guard. You ran I back ran down back. the street, picked up your car, and then came back. <laughs> then we brought it to the office. Uh, as we brought it to the office, and, we, and we're tweeting this as we go, and and then it kind of exploded. And, and all these people started uh, sharing their, their memories and stories. The Furman family got in touch. Uh, and originally, we had no idea what we were going to do with this sign. But the, the rooms, our, our friends at the rooms, uh, decided that they were going to take this sign and restore it. And, uh, and they are in the process of doing some research and, and uh, conservation. Um, and hopefully, they're going to do an exhibit on kind of the Jewish merchants of, of St. John's, the Jewish community. Which is part of their mandate to tell some of those some of those stories, and uh, yeah, so this uh, sign from from Louis Furman is going to be part of this exhibit. 
so when people found out that we were, were doing this, it opened up a, a flood of stories in, and memories. And I've been collecting what I can about, about Lewis Furman and his shop. So, so he and his wife, Grunia, had this shop right on the corner there of Water in Adelaide. And, and it was, a, I guess, like a, like a woman's clothing shop for the most part. Clothing, a millinery or, yeah. Yeah, a clothing shop. Uh, and lots of people. So this would have been in the 50s into the, the 60s. I think the Furmans moved away around 1980 or something like that. And uh, people just had all kinds of memories. So, so I've been doing some oral history work and collecting what I can and, and where I can. So what we want to do today is play some of those, some of those clips, uh, just to give you a sense of, of some of the stories that we're hearing and, and collecting about, about the Furmans. So the very first clip you're going to hear is, is part of an interview I did with Mr. Donald Morgan. Uh, formerly of the Morgan Printing Company in downtown St. John's. I met up with Mr. Morgan at his home last October, and we chatted about his memories of Lewis, or Louis, Furman. Anyway, uh, I used to, we had a family business, Morgan Printing Company, that started my father and grandfather. And uh, Mr. Furman was one of our customers. He didn't have a lot of printing, but he had enough, you know, uh, invoices and that sort of thing. And the Christmas cards at Christmas time. <clears throat> anyway, he told me how he had uh, come to Newfoundland basically with nothing. But the Jewish uh, businessman along Wall Street had each advanced him some clothing, which he took a suitcase, and I think he went out on the train. He said he went to places that didn't have stores. He sold from door to door. Then he got back to St. John's, and he paid the people for the clothes and took more. Eventually, he said he got to the place where he had a van, and he used to take a van out. And then he said he had a, I think he had a, one of those uh, square trucks, you know, what do you call them, Cuba. This must have been about in the late 60s. He said, even the day, he said, when, if I have a, a slow month, with, he said, I can load up the truck and go out to the outports, he says, and I can make up the difference. I think he must have been a natural salesman, but he was a pleasant person, easy to talk to. I was in his office one day, and uh, a sales clerk came in, and she said, lady out here and she's in that town and she wants to buy coal but she can't afford to pay for it right now she must know who give her credit <coughs> well, there's no credit cards in those days he went out and they talked to her and she came back and he told her whether he could or not and he's always said you know he said uh, I don't give credit to everybody he said but he said I've never yet had anybody that I gave credit to stiff me so he must have been a really good judge of character you know? the salesman came to see him and he had a sample room set up down at the Hotel Newfoundland. He wanted to come down and look at his stuff he had because he could only take so much into his store. And he said, I'll drive you down. And uh, he said, uh, No, he said, uh, he said uh, I'll, I'll drive my own car. I'll meet you down. No, no, come. He said, Come in my car. He said, No, he said, and it was a Volkswagen. He said, The last time I got in a goddamn car like that, he said, I got this. There's this big dent in his forehead that came from a rifle butt. He told me that the Gestapo has questioned him, beaten him up and hit him in the forehead with the rifle button, thought they'd either killed him or he was going to die, threw him out in the backyard of the building, and that he said he could regain consciousness, and he went home to find that his parents were missing. He later found their bodies, his father and mother. He said his father was a scholar, and uh, he uh, had buried them. He told me he buried them himself. And so he has come from a hard back. But they also had a sense of humor, you know. So yeah, so that that was the interview with uh, Mr. 
Donald Morgan. And you hadn't heard that clip before, had No, you? I hadn't. Yeah. <laughs> and my face was very shocked when I learned <laughs> what he said about the car. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a fascinating little story. So, you know, I think a lot of people... Uh, at the time, uh, you know, people who sort of knew a little bit about about his story, but I don't know that he he really talked about it that much. Uh, people knew that he had been through some some bad times, I think, uh, overseas um, during the war and, and had lost family members. Um, but most people in St. John's knew him as a, as a shopkeeper, and and he had a he had a reputation as being something of a of a generous uh, generous man. Um, so the, the sign, as we said, uh, is under conservation at the Rooms Museum here in St. John's, and the sign has been tented with plastic, and and they're rehydrating it uh, to allow the paint to relax so that it can be reattached back to the wood, and then they'll put the different pieces uh, back together. And when we posted about the sign through the Heritage NL social media, one of the people who reached out to us was Ruth Noseworthy Green, um, who we've had on this show before talking about rug hooking. And she contacted us to let us know that she had previously donated a wedding dress to the rooms, which had originally come from Mr. Furman's shop. Uh, Ruth's Aunt Jessie had worked for Miss, Mr. Furman, uh, and this is her story. Okay, she was Jessie Pinn from the Southside Road, and she married my dad's first cousin, Art Taylor, in the late, I think, 59. I'm not quite sure, but I have it written down somewhere. Um, and then she um, worked for Louis Furman. She was a shop girl down there for a number of years. And uh, we, as children, would go there to do our shopping, or our, my grandmother would call Aunt Jessie. Actually, Aunt Jessie probably dressed most of the kids on the Southside Road, because in those days, you could take things home on consignment to take them home to try on and so people would call Aunt Jessie and say I need a size whatever for little Joey and she'd bring a whole bunch of things home for people to try on and take them back the next day if they didn't want to buy them and so that's how we all shopped so um, and then when when one of his staff uh, were getting married Louis Furman would give them their wedding dress and uh, so Aunt Jessie's dress was beautiful gown with a little bolero top on it, all beaded, and uh, it's now at the rooms, part of their collection. And uh, I have her going away outfit, which I suspect was also bought or given to her by the Furmans, and I still have that. I remember the stairs. Isn't that funny as a child? The stairs were at the back of the shop, and you went up to a landing and then up again to the second floor. The third floor, I think, was just um, where they kept their merchandise. You didn't shop up there. And I don't remember where the children's department was, but I know going in, you'd always hear Mr. Furman because he, he was always talking in some other language because all the seamen would go to see him because he, he spoke, I guess, about seven languages, I think. Oh, they had a children's clothing department and a men's clothing and ladies' clothing. And I don't remember that. I don't think they had hats. I think that was Millie's down Water Street had the hats. Yeah. And um, I vaguely remember the, the racks of clothing. But it was Mr. Furman that I remember most because of the animation and, and hands, you know, talking <laughs> his hands. He was always very animated with the customers. And he'd sell ice to a, a Labradorian. He yeah. would, he would. And his wife was a beautiful looking woman, a real lady, really very kind. And... Uh, Always nice to everybody who went in there. When, as we got older, we'd walk home from school, 
And we'd stop in there and say hello to Aunt Jessie, you know. And she lived further down the south side uh, in those days. And Aunt Jessie's story was very similar to mine, that her mother died when she was a baby. And she was raised by her grandmother. And her Uncle Mick was blind, and he lived with them. And she looked after Uncle Mick till he died. And they lived further down the south side, and then they moved to Old Petty Harbor Road. So that was Ruth Noseworthy Green there talking about her her aunt Jessie having worked for the for the Furmans, and and I love that story about how generous they were about how they would give give things away you know give the the wedding dresses to the the women that that worked there and and someone else had told us a story uh, you know back when when the the business with the sign was unfolding about how um, he always had change in his pockets. And if people uh, knew he was coming along, like people who were kind of down and out on, mm-hmm. on Water Street, that he would he would give beggars money as he as he went around. Everyone knew that uh, Mr. Furman was good for some for some change, and and, and I guess he kind of had come from nothing and and came and uh, kind of made his money here. And I know he gave a lot to charity. That was one of the other things that that people said with that how uh, generous he was about giving to local charities. We got one last clip that I wanted to play uh, and this is more about his home life than his business life. I interviewed Brenda Sims Flood who grew up on Cornwall Heights across from the Furmans. Brenda Sims Flood grew up here and I'm now back living here and I live across the street from the Furmans. Well I I moved over to uh, Cornwall Heights when I was about six or seven years old and I don't remember anybody else living in the house except the Furmans and then then the Dins. Uh, So Mr. and Mrs. Furman had two children, uh, Leah and uh, Alan. They were both either, well, Leah was a little bit older than I am and uh, Alan younger. But in those days with the the street was dead end, we were all, you know, as children, we were all out playing together outside. But what I do recollect most of all is my parents' interaction with uh, the Furmans. And uh, they were very, very friendly uh, neighbors. There was a lot of uh, uh, coming and going uh, uh, among the houses of the Snellgroves, my own parents, and uh, the Furmans. And the women in particular were great friends. what I do remember, uh, which is kind of um, interesting, is uh, Mr. Furman, and I think it has been noted the number of languages both Mr. and Mrs. Furman spoke, I think eight or nine. And Mr. Furman was called on in many cases to go over to the hospitals to translate for any number of, um, uh, of the patients that were there. <clears throat> I was speaking with uh, Keith Snellgrove, the dental surgeon, this is uh, uh, the neighbor as well. And he tells me that Mr. Furman used to bring patients into his office and translate for them as well. What was kind of interesting uh, was that Mr. Furman, besides being very much, and you can understand it, against the Nazis, also had his little crusade against communists. And for that reason, he used to bring many of the fishing captains and higher-ups on the fishing boats to his house to show them what he had as living in a capitalist country. But to show that it wasn't just his house that had a fridge and a stove, he used to bring them over to our house too and show that everybody in the neighborhood had these sorts of, uh, as he called them, luxuries to them. Uh, We had a lot of um, fish 
given to us because Mr. Furman was gifted with fish and he couldn't, um, you know, eat it all. So we had a lot of fish as well. And uh, our cat, Smokey, <laughs> was uh, <laughs> the recipient <laughs> of a lot of very good rich fish. Our cat, Smokey, had caviar. <laughs> and strangely enough, it was a bit too rich for the cat. <laughs> now we had a very fuzzy cat, but uh, <laughs> this, <laughs> this was quite something. But, you know, that's the amount of number of times that Mr. Furman brought people over here and then he had so much fish given to him, he just couldn't consume it. So we had a lot of fish as well. The other thing that I remember about uh, Mr. Furman, uh, it's kind of hard to think how important it was to me uh, considering the internet today, but he got me pen pals. And uh, two in particular wrote me for years, one from Poland and one from Russia. And, uh, you know, getting something in the mail from these countries. These girls were roughly my age, I think. And uh, I found that, uh, you know, today nothing would be made of it. But, you know, 50, 60 years ago, yeah, it certainly was. Uh, the other thing that I uh, uh, found interesting was uh, that uh, Canada wasn't the most welcoming to the Jewish people, but Newfoundland was. And uh, I have given a picture showing uh, my mother, Mrs. Snellgrove, and Mrs. Furman at the airport uh, at the time that she was leaving, just after receiving her honorary degree. And I think it's of importance because these three women were back and forth all the time, Catholic, uh, Protestant, and Jew, and it made no difference. And the other thing, too, is that we used to eat at each other's houses. And I'm sure that both Mrs. Snellgrove and my mother made mistakes with the Jewish uh, traditions, but it was never noticed. And uh, that's pretty well all I have to say, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's Brenda Sims Flood there talking about her memories of growing up across the street from the Furmans. So we'll bring you updates, I guess, as this story progresses, if, as we know more about the, the Furman family. And if you have a story or a memory of uh, Louis or Grunia Furman or their shop down on Water Street, or, or anywhere else, because they did go around as uh, kind of itinerant merchants and uh, and sell stuff, especially, I think, in Placentia Bay. And they had, for a while, a shop in uh, uh, Carbonier as well. So certainly, if you are listening and you have a memory of the Furmans, you can you can get in touch with us. You can email me, dale at heritagenl.ca, and I'd love to love to hear your stories. So this, this story of, of post-war people coming to Newfoundland, uh, uh, many people coming from kind of Eastern Europe and, and settling here and opening up shops, this is a story that was repeated across the island. And one of the projects that we've talked about a bit before on this show is our project that we did, or that Tara was mostly involved with, out in Grand Falls, Windsor, the town of Windsor. So, Terry, do you want to give us a little bit of an update on that project and the Virtual Museums of Canada project that you're just wrapping up and launching now? Sure. Well, I guess uh, one of those things that is similar to uh, the, what happened at the Furmans is Mary Kelly, who's one of the, the people who was interviewed for that project. Uh, she discusses kind of how, um, how you would be able to take things home and try those things on at home and decide whether or not you actually wanted to buy those things or not. And I've got a little clip here that, that in which she discusses that that ability to take things home and try things on. Well, you went in the front door and um, the upstairs, the offices were upstairs. 
And when you went in, the men's department was on the left and the women's department was on the right. And originally, when I was a kid, they had a lunch counter upstairs. You could also go and get a lunch at Raves. And they also had Christmas. When they'd bring in their Christmas stuff, it would be upstairs. And that was a thrill of going in around Christmas time. It's going up into, like, this winter wonderland where they had their Christmas stuff all set up. And my aunt, the offices for the clerical staff were upstairs as well, and the washrooms. So, like, you'd have to go through to get up and, and see her and stuff like that. And like I said, back then, the neat thing about those stores is you could take stuff home and, um, and not on commission, but on, uh, take it home, try on the stuff, and then go back with what you either wanted or didn't want, right? They let you take it home. I'm going to try that now. I'm going to go to a shop and say, oh, I just want to take this home and not pay for it and, and, and try it on. And then if I don't like it, I'll bring it back. Sure. I'm sure they'd let you take I'm home sure, a bag yeah. of stuff and yeah, try it on at home. So you were collecting these uh, stories as part of um, uh, part of a project. Uh, and this is now uh, a uh, it's live online. So people can go and they can listen to these stories for the Virtual Museums of Canada uh, program. So people want to listen to these stories from Windsor, where do they where do they go? Yeah, so they can go to the Virtual Museums website, which is virtualmuseums.ca, um, and this is actually a community story exhibit. So if you click on community stories up on the, you know, up on the tabs up top, uh, you can go there, and I think it's the second story there. So it's the Memories and uh, Merchants of Main Street, Windsor, and you can take a listen. There's, there's uh, 12 different stories, and you can go in and, and read through kind of the background history of Main Street in Windsor, and you can click on the different merchants who grew up there, and there's different story audio clips for each story. Yeah, and great uh, vintage photographs of, of the street and, and people on, on Main Street. So do you have another clip for us then? Yeah, so this one here comes from Yvonne Courtney, who has a great vivid memory, and she's discussing um, how she remembers walking into this one particular shop on Main Street called the Cozy Chat. When I walked in, uh, it was the most amazing place I had seen as a child because it looked like things I had seen in a magazine. Uh, there was lots of red and lots of black and a big long counter and the counter had round stools and the stools were like on funnel shaped bases and there was a huge mirror on the back on this side and at that counter here there were the draw handles and I didn't understand the draw handles. I just knew they were shiny and they were beautiful. And of course, you're sitting in the booths, all the booths were on this side, and they were like cush, uh, red and black. And you're sitting in the booths. And I remember Dad adding up his coat one day on the side of the booth. It must have been a, a little coat rack there or something to hang up your coat. And I would be watching as they would, they, they would go order, and they would pull these things and make sodas for us. And it would be a little silver cup type thing, silver funnel shape on a little stem, like cute. And then they would put this white, um, little white cup in there, it was triangular again, went down into the little silver stand. And then they go like that. You'd hear the sound of the swooshing of the soda. And they'd probably plop ice cream in there. I'm not certain what went in there. I just remember the sound and the look of it. And then they plop a straw to the top. So that's what would come to the table. So that was a great description of a, of a nice ice cream soda that I'd certainly like to have a sip of. Yeah, you're right. She does really have a good, vivid memory. She's a great storyteller. You know? Certainly. Yeah. 
Uh, so there's another person who uh, I interviewed as part of this project who's got a great memory, and she talks about her father's shop. And this is Elizabeth Munchpower, whose father, uh, Herman Run- Munch, uh, ran a shoe shop on Main Street. And uh, she's got a great little clip where she talks about the smell as you kind of walk in. And and this was he was a German uh, immigrant to to Newfoundland. And the, and this was the, was this the tiny shop? Was this the yes? So yeah. he was a German in, immigrant, and his wife was French, and they moved after the Second World War to. Well, he was trying to decide where to come, but they came to um, they came to Quebec first, and then they ended up in Main Street in in Grand Falls, Windsor. And uh, yeah, his shop was described as the tiniest shop in in Newfoundland <laughs> at the time. You could walk in and essentially touch two sides at the one time. It was very, very tiny. It was a long, narrow kind of shop, and when you'd open up the door, you'd go in, and there was a counter with the cash register in front of you. On each side of the walls, there were just shelves that all of the shoes were put in when they were, I think there was one side for the shoes that were fixed, and maybe another side for the shoes that weren't. Uh, There was a little sofa, for people to sit in and then a telephone next to it and I remember we had a dog <laughs> we had a dog and that was her favorite place to be was on the sofa with dad she loved dad so that's where she was and then so there you had your uh, counter either m- mostly mom would be behind the counter or dad both of them um, and uh, there were little tickets I remember you, you'd write out your tickets attach them to the shoes and give you know the person their little stub and and there was a little box under the counter and you put all the used tickets. And on bonfire night every year, dad would keep the big boxes of tickets. And on bonfire night every year, we'd have this big bonfire across the field, across the tracks in a field. I can't remember what the name of the field was called. And uh, dad would bring them down and burn them all on bonfire night. It was great. I love that. Uh that story because it, it really it really kind of gets to the heart of this uh, this podcast episode about these people who came here and really made Newfoundland their home. So you have these immigrants who are coming from other places and coming here and then kind of adopting these local traditions like bonfire celebrating night. bonfire night. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> that's great. Uh, okay, so. Uh, I think that that probably is bringing us towards the end of our of our clips program today. Um, we'd love to know if any of these stories uh, elicit any memories for you. So if you if you have a memory of either growing up uh, in uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, or memories of the Jewish merchants along Water Street in St. John's, certainly let us know. You can email me, uh, Dale at heritagenl.ca, um, and and you can visit our website uh, www.ichblog blog.ca and you can, uh, you can learn more about this and all the other projects that we do at Heritage uh, NL. One of the neat things about this particular project that you're working on Tara is that it's it's fully translated too. We don't <laughs> we don't often have Yeah, we don't have often that. have anything that's translated because of the cost of translation and then the difficulty that goes into that, but this is a fully translated website, so it's available in French and it's also like it's you can click back and forth between each individual panel. So if you're on you're on something and you're reading English and you want to read it in French, you can click and it'll all come up in French as well, which is awesome. A really nice resource for for teachers or for students who are doing heritage fairs projects, you know. I know there's a lot of that happening uh, right now. So so hopefully you'll go to the Virtual Museums of Canada website and and check that uh, that story out. And there's lots of great stories from all across Canada. A really really wonderful collection and some great stories from from Newfoundland uh, specifically. 
Um, anything else you want to add about the Virtual Museums of Canada project before we go? Any, what, did you, what did you like best about doing this project? I think what I liked best about this project was the ability to, I guess, get it to a wider audience. You mentioned that it's available in French, which is wonderful, but just to get it up online in a format that makes it more accessible for people who might want to access that, like teachers, like students, but anywhere and from anywhere can kind of go on there and listen and read those stories and get a better sense of what Windsor was like at the time when this, when I guess all this immigration was happening and all of these changes were happening in Newfoundland Labrador. Yeah, immigration is so much in the news right now and people have, uh, you know, all these fears about, you know, these strangers coming to our communities and taking over jobs and and changing the way uh, our, our communities are. But what, what we actually find from these stories that we've collected is that you know, everything kind of turned out great <laughs> for the most part, you know, and and really made a, a very positive contribution to, to Newfoundland uh, society, Newfoundland culture. So, yeah, it's kind of a, these are older stories, like stories from the post-war period, but to kind of mirror some of the stuff that's, that's happening today. Yeah. So thank you, uh, Tara, for coming on the show. I'm Dale Jarvis. And this is Tara Barrett. And you're listening to Living Heritage Podcast. You can find us online on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Tara Barrett, you've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ich underscore nl. Thanks for listening. <laughs>